to 501c3bs, deprogramming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! This could be among the biggest heaping piles of bullshit in the history of our industry, yet it keeps getting passed down and propagated for generations. Why? Because this particular piece of cow patty comes wrapped in a bright, shiny box disguised as a great present. Every board member who ever sat on a board is convinced that the best way to bring money into the organization is a big, shiny fundraiser. They know this because it's what they were taught on other boards, and it's what they've always done. They are sure that it works because they have seen it work, or at least they think they've seen it. It is time-tested and proven. Or is it? This is the same line of bullshit that teenage boys use when discussing their sexual exploits. They lie because they think it makes them look better to lie. In fundraising events, the same holds true. An organization will brag about how they cleared $100,000 on their gala. They will talk about how they want to make it bigger next year. They want to make it a bigger part of the budget and grow the organization through growing the gala. They brag about their conquests and their macho ability to get more. You feel inadequate and think, I should be more like them. I've heard this a great deal throughout my career, and every time I've had the opportunity to look at the books and check it out for myself, it's all bullshit. Here is what really is happening. The organization throws a gala every year that is successful in terms of selling tickets and getting sponsors. The board, or a committee of the board, usually think that is their big responsibility of the year. In a series of meetings, the board will ask the staff to put together a list of sponsors and a list of attendees. Then the board will ask the staff to call the list and get rid of duplicates and those who moved out of town. The board will ask the staff to send out invitations and sponsorship letters, which the board will have to approve. It takes several meetings for them to get a letter and invite that they like from the staff. The board calls their friends and gets sponsors and auction items. The board asks the staff to pick up the items and sponsorship. The staff package up the auction items. The staff produce the event with weekly meetings checking in with board committees as it gets close. Eventually, the event happens. The board is everywhere, shaking hands and making speeches while the staff work their asses off in the kitchen and auction tables and supervising volunteers. Those volunteers are usually undertrained, so the staff must redo a lot of what they do. At the end, the budget comes in. The organization received $30,000 in sponsorship, sold $40,000 in tickets, and made $30,000 from the auction and other donations. The expenses were listed as $70,000. The organization netted $30,000. But what will be reported at the next board meeting and in the newspaper is this. We had a very successful fundraising gala this year, bringing in over $100,000, a new high, thanks to our great board committee who made the whole thing happen. And there will be applause at the board meeting. But what really happened? $30,000 came in from sponsors who would have sponsored the organization anyway, even if there was no gala. They could have just as easily sponsored the programs. So that net was $30,000. The budget didn't include the cost of staff time. They never do. When you look back on what actually happened, you see that the staff are working on this all year with occasional check-ins of the board committee. If you included staff time in the budget, you would see that 10% of all staff salaries are going to the gala. That would add $50,000 in an organization with a half million dollar payroll. If you do that, you see the gala is actually losing $20,000 each year and taking an ornament amount of staff time away from the mission, programs, and fundraising. In my work at a cultural center, we realized this exact scenario. I told the board, if we have no gala, but work to ensure that the sponsors keep sponsoring us through programs, we can get $30,000 by doing no event at all. 
rather than losing $20,000 a year on the gala. The board was a great board, and they agreed, and we did exactly that. The next year after changing to this new model, we made money. It freed us up to spend our resources on more productive and mission-based fundraising. Eventually, the board committee missed doing an event, so we asked them to help us with a smaller event that would be not so labor-intensive. That event took two weeks to put together, cost nothing, and netted $10,000. Once we got past the bullshit, we could do extraordinary things. There are organizations out there that just won't believe this until they really analyze their own budgets and the hidden costs that are not included. I know one organization that has over $6 million annual budget who does a gala that brings in $325,000 a year, but costs $375,000 a year to produce. I asked them why they continue to do it. The answer? Because some board members really need us to do it, and it keeps us connected to certain donors. Another answer is these big events generate press, prestige, and the thought that this is a successful organization. In other words, it's a lot of show. Those donors would leave without the gala, I asked? No, I don't think so, but the board isn't willing to take that risk. That's another reason we do the same things over and over and expect a different result. I have seen organizations in the news, large, well-run international CBOs, that are also NGOs working around the world, and they boast $3 million raised at their splashy annual galas in New York or Los Angeles. I've been to a few of these, but then when you look at their books, 70% of that is expenses, sometimes more. But it's worth it for the press and the perception that they are big, important organizations with many investors. Potential clients call me, meet with me, and guess what their number one thing is to ask? How can we make more money on our gala? There's a real sense that our gala is only making 10% of our budget and we think it could do a lot more. Why did they think that? because it seems like others are doing much better with their galas. It's a perception in our industry that galas should generate a large chunk of our income. I would say 10% is normal and about what should be expected. Your real income should be coming from the programs as earned income and grants and contracts, social enterprise, other areas. To that they scoff, what? Programs can't make money, they say. I would ask these organizations, what would happen if you did the following? You invited a sponsor to come and take a tour of your programs. You make a pitch and invite them to sponsor the programs instead of the gala. You tell them that's one less rubber chicken dinner that they have to go to, and they can serve the mission directly. I'm guessing all of your sponsors will line up for that. Ours always did. Knowing your fundraising is mission-based, that's a good thing. Now your fundraising is mission-based. And you can get the board to do the part they always did, call their friends and get sponsors and auction items. But instead of having a gala, the sponsors will be handled as I just outlined, and the auction will be held online as a charity auction site, such as biddingforgood.com. You could still make $40,000 off an online auction, and staff can link the auction to the organization's social media, which helps marketing and may bring in younger bidders, which could translate to younger investors in the organization. And if you really want to throw an event, you could try putting on a silent tea. That is where you send out an invite to a gala that is a silent tea party. In the invite, you include a tea bag. You tell them, we are all too busy to attend another event with long speeches and rubbery chicken. Use this tea bag to have your own event and just send us the money. Then you can include a link to where they can see your programs. If the invite is cute enough, it could be very effective. You could also host a thank you party for volunteers as an appreciation event and ask the sponsors to sponsor that. You could host a simple barbecue or pizza party at one of the organization's key programs and take attendees on a program tour so they can really get immersed into the mission of the organization. Include an ask at the end. These kinds of events take almost no money to produce and bring in great returns because people are connecting to the mission. That is something for which you can send out a press release and try to get press to come as well. My experience is that press want to cover an actual interesting program rather than another gala. 
You can also figure out other fun ways throughout the year that you can connect investors to the mission. Make sure you are writing your annual appeal letters, taking part in giving day events given by local community foundations, and doing all the normal, great ways of fundraising that are not bullshit. Now let's look at a budget from these kinds of changes. Your $30,000 in sponsors are still there. Your $40,000 in auction is also still there, but now online, generating more marketing and investors. Most, if not all, of your event expenses are gone. Your staff expenses are gone because now everything is mission-based. If you make $10,000 for a smaller event, you will end up netting $80,000 with a very small event rather than losing $20,000 on a time-consuming gala. Smaller is better here. And don't get me wrong. There are some gala-type events that make great money for organizations, some in the hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars. But these successful large-scale fundraisers fall into one of these three categories. Either they are one, an event that has grown organically and developed over a long period of time and become a cultural event of the season in a town that hosts it. In some towns, these are major festivals, races, sporting events, or car shows that take over the entire town and are the thing the town is known for doing. Think about things like the Pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach, California, the Ashland Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon, the Rose Parade in Pasadena, or the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. Each started life as a small fundraiser for an organization. Some have been doing it for over 100 years, and most for at least 20 years to become an institution. Do you have that kind of long-range thinking and investment into an event? Two, another type of event is one that's thrown by a single business or a wealthy individual on behalf of an organization, where they do all the work. In a small town near Los Angeles, there's a Hollywood-type manager of the stars guy who lives there and loves his church. Every year, he makes his big-name clients perform at the church festival, which has taken over the town. The whole thing is donated, and every bit of money makes a profit for the church, and the entire town shows up to see their favorite stars perform. Or three, a small-time event where everyone kicks in a good idea and it gets it off the ground. This is the most tragic of fundraisers in the long term. A CBO has a great idea. They pitch it to the town usually with someone powerful in town politics behind it. Everyone jumps on board. They host a giant festival and they make a great deal of money because all the sponsors are behind it and they are up to their ears and volunteers. The second year, there's a little less enthusiasm to give so much because we've done it already. Then the weather turns bad or the food runs out or there's a bomb threat or some scandal. Soon everyone is criticizing the event. Every year it loses momentum. The organizers don't want to let go of their idea and they keep thinking it will turn around, but it never does. And it never raises as much money as the first year. This happens quite a lot. Townspeople are going around talking about that stupid event, or why can't they let it go? Now, in the first case, the event takes decades to develop into a cultural institution that can change a town. In the second case, the fundraiser's thrown for you, and that's the best way to have a fundraiser, if you can get it. And in the last case, everyone gets on board with a new idea, and then eventually it fizzles out. If you can't get someone to throw your event for you, it's much better to grow organically, but these could take many years before they become profitable. If you don't have that kind of time to waste, get out while you're ahead. The next time somebody on your board says at a meeting, all we need is one big fundraiser, don't fall for that bullshit. They might as well say, we just need to dig for gold in the hills. You are just as likely to succeed in either case. Kathy Mastavoy is a proven executive leader with more than 25 years experience in the social sector. As the past CEO for Los Angeles-based Woodcraft Rangers, she led a growth of the organization from under a million dollars a year to over $12 million a year and increased services to over 17,000 young people. Much of her success as a leader in her work is due to her ability to leverage funding, build strong relationships, and maximize business partnerships and community involvement. 
She is the co-founder with her husband of Mastavoy Strategies, a consulting firm for the social sector. We met recently when both of us started serving as executive coaches for the Olin Group and St. Joseph's Health Foundation, improving emerging organizations in the high desert area of San Bernardino County. Kathy, welcome to the program. Uh, so we're, we're here today to talk about the big gala. Tell us a little bit about your experience with galas. I know you've done it on the board level and probably as a consultant too. I have done it on both levels. I think the gala serves a position in the social sector. I think that it is one strategy. It's certainly not all strategies, and I absolutely agree with you that um, most organizations do not report all costs to board staff or other of what really is taking to put on that signature gala. So I think there's a lot of other ways to do it versus having that one huge, large year round thing that everyone's working on. Yeah. And, and, you know, some people will say, well, it didn't make a lot of money, but it was a great f- friend raiser. And I sometimes take issue with that. Like, I think if you're doing a walkathon for breast cancer or for, you know, lung cancer, whatever, uh, you know, it can be a good friend raiser in terms that you can get a lot of publicity out there and awareness out there for a cause. But when you're talking about a golf tournament for the Boys and Girls Club, for example, you're not really raising friends because they're not connected to the organization by going to play golf. No, they're connections to the individual. But normally, if you're with that person long enough and they buy in and they do that over and over again, they can become full-on donors to the organization. I think there are two things. I think that a friend raiser, to me, and doing that gala for that purpose is a long-term strategy. It's a, it's not going to, you should not be looking at the whatever, 100000 you bring in, but you only really brought in, you know, 10000 or less when you look at all your costs. Right. Uh, but if you're looking at it over a period of time and that golf tournament becomes where people get together once a year and talk again and then they start moving into it, I think it's a good long-term strategy. I think we look at that, and I'm not a big fan of golf tournaments, so I have to go to something else. <laughs> but I think even doing a casino night or, or anything else can really introduce people to the organizations. If they're coming back for that one person year after year, again, it's a good long-term strategy. It is not the way, and I think boards need to understand, that it's not the way to close the gap between your um, monthly payments, the bills, your expenses, and your revenue. It is probably what I would say the worst way to go after closing that gap. Yeah. I mean, so let me push back a little bit on, on that. So the casino night, which is a lot of fun. Those are a lot of fun and you can do them at a board member's house or at a country club or whatever. But let's say, let's say you're, you're a youth organization. You're having a casino night at a country club. Do you think that's a better friend raiser than say having the people uh, that you're going to invite come to the boys and girls club for a pizza party and actually see the kids in action doing what they're doing and what you're supporting which do you think would be more? Right. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I, I think it's multiple strategies. So that's why I think the gala is a strategy. When you're talking about going to someone's house or going on a site visit, I think you have to do all of those things to get people really to engage with your organization. I don't think it's one or the other or one is best. Going on a site visit takes a lot less time, and I used to do bus tours to our sites. Um, you're going to get a certain donor that really wants to connect with I did, you know, after-school programs and summer camps. You're going to get that donor that really wants to see those kids engaging in what the program's about. But you are going to get those donors that like being in the, for lack of another word, glitz of the gala. They like to be there and be present. So I think there's different strategies organizations have to take 
when they're looking at that gala. And again, I'm going to go back to how much your resources are. And I mean human resources to put those on. It takes a lot of human resources or a whole lot of money to hire a big firm to do that. So yeah, I think I, that organizations have to look at that. I, I can, like if you and I were serving on the board of an organization, I would agree with you that if the board was taking on the main functions of the gala and not putting that on the staff, which I think a lot of them think they're doing, but they're not really doing. And, and I lay it out in my, you know, in my presentation on this podcast that a lot of the board members think they're doing all the work when they, and they don't realize that the staff are doing the majority of the work and, and, uh, and that they're, they're putting it on the staff. And I don't think they realize that and they never see the staff cost. So it never really comes up to them. But if the, yeah, I agree. Yeah. But if the board was going to be doing the actual work and not imposing on the staff, then I agree with you that having the gala is a, is a great extra thing if you can afford to do it. I think where most boards go wrong is they think that's their best fundraiser and they don't realize that it's the least effective of the fundraising strategies that they employ. And I would agree with you there. And I want to say for it doesn't matter the size of the organization also. So when you're talking about human resources or what's going into it, my daughter's a development director for national organization um, that has, when you're talking about big galas, they're the ones where you're talking about, you know, your ladies at lunch group um, putting these on. And I will say for those ladies at lunch, yes, they do do some things, but the breath still comes to the staff and they still do not put in the cost of that, her salary. Right. And what it really costs them to present to the board. So it doesn't matter that small, you know, um, the size of the organization, I think, as as people in the social sector, we're not being honest with ourselves when we say this is what it raised. You know, it doesn't. But you have to either have a lot of reasons why you're doing it, like those ladies at lunch like their galas, they like their luncheons. You know, fine. Um, but be honest with the board on what that really costs. And I think that's what you're saying. That's not the most cost effective. If you're doing it because that's what's keeping them on the board and they're bringing in thirty thousand dollars for a donor. Cool, but be honest about what it's really doing yeah. for you. Wouldn't that 30000 which I will say my daughter and I have had many discussions about, have been better served if they just gave it to the organization versus doing And don't gala. you think there are a lot of high-end donors that don't necessarily love the gala as much as people in our in our side of the table think they do? You know, a lot of our people think they, they would be lost without the gala, that the people would never come back, they would never give money. And on the other side of the table, I hear the funders saying, uh, you know, if I could go to, if I could avoid going to another rubber chicken dinner, it would be the best thing. No, I agree. And I think most funders or even your, you know, your corporate business people that you're working with and partners don't want to go to those dinners. I do agree yeah. with that. Uh, I just think there is a sector that likes that. And I, that's why I think you have to look at your sectors of your donors um, when you're in this industry and what sits each of them and then have, whether that is an event, a site visit, you know, your kids in your program giving them an art thank you greeting card for Christmas, you know, things like that. It depends because some people would much rather have, like I said, what I just said, an art greeting card during the holiday saying thank you so much for your donation than ever sitting in one of those galas. And it'll probably give me the exact same dollars. So yeah. I think it's much more about developing the relationships and knowing who your donors are than what the event is. Well, I think you just. And well, I don't I... think we put as much time on learning who our relationships are and what they I, would like out of the relationship. Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's all about relationship building. And a lot of people think that the gala is the, you know, once a year they connect with their donor and that's what keeps them engaged and involved. But I think if they spent maybe half of the staff time 
just working on building, keeping that relationship going all year, they could maybe even not have the gala and probably get more funding. Yes. And I think more funders are going that way. One of the clients I have um, that's in the tech business has gone to doing social good giving and their social enterprise, um, I mean, social giving. And they have decided just to give it to organizations in the tech industry. I would say for the money they're giving out, they're getting much more return on directly creating that relationship with the nonprofits. Now, in return, they don't want the gala. They don't want to thank you. But they want to be involved in their giving. So for their $10,000, which isn't huge, but you know it's a small, medium-sized tech company, for their 10000 a year, what they want to do is have you engage with them, tell them what you're doing. If you're going to do an event in their name, they would like to make sure that they're presented, they, you know, their logo is the right way, their mission statement is the right way. All those things are in line. And I think if we took more time in the social sector to really develop those relationships, I think we would find that you would get probably close to the same amount of dollars giving back what they want. And, you know, like I said, the tech company doesn't want it in the spotlight, but they do want to report at the end of the year that they can report, you know, that we've touched X number of kids' lives by giving out these grants. You know, so I think it's just an area everybody has to resurface on. I think galas are kind I of I think old you school. hit the nail on the head. It's, it's all about building relationships. And there's probably, in most small to mid-sized organizations, there's probably a lot better way to build those relationships and to build fundraising with without doing the gala and maybe doing something that's more um, mission related. I know for myself, I you know I'm I'm in the nonprofit sector. Sorry, I'm in the community benefit sector. <laughs> and yeah, you the I'm still I'm still learning. I'm still learning myself. You know, it's hard to get rid of old labels. Uh, but I'm in that sector. For- I have the words in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in that sector myself. And, and I try to give 10% of my income away and I do it through a community foundation. And, uh, and I, so I'm a, I'm a funder of a very small scale myself. And, um, and I go to many events, both as a, as a person in the industry and as a funder. And, um, and when I go, I would much rather go see exactly what they're doing um, and do a site visit than go to a splashy gala for me. And I think most people probably feel that way. And it's really, like you said, it's about the relationship. It is definitely about the relationship, and I am um, one of the, the things we do in Mossway Strategies is event coordination. To me, that doesn't always mean the fundraiser or the gala. It's the what you just said. It's the, it's the educational side on what really is going on with the organization, and you know, is it something that you're passionate about in your community, and, or something you feel that you're really close to because of other relationships, and it's connecting on that level. Um, yeah, I do think that, and I do think it's changing with individuals giving money, like you just said yourself. I know my husband and I go to a lot of things. We're just looking, you know, at a golf tournament that I am involved with. It's taking millions of volunteer hours, and the cost is huge. I don't know if I think I would rather give that money directly to the organization than have my husband play golf that he could play quite frankly for a whole lot less for the day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) If he wants a golf bag at the end of the day, I could go buy it for less. So, you know, um, I agree with what you're saying. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort and yeah, he could probably get together with the guys and play golf another place for a lot less and I could take the same donation and hand it over. Well, good. I'm I'm glad we solved that problem today. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, we did. No, I agree. I agree. I'm going to go back to what I originally said is that it does fill a need because I'm watching a bunch of guys around the table about a golf tournament that are so jazzed um, about this golf tournament. And maybe that's why I said I'm not a fan of them. But um, there are thrills about having that and drinking all day and being out with people. And, you know, to me, when you say the flip side of the table, that sounds horrible to me. Okay, I can think of anything worse to do in a day. Yeah. But, you know, so it does still fill a need. I don't think you can throw the baby out with No, the but I think water. you have to be realistic on what the actual costs are. And when you're figuring out your priorities for fundraising, this maybe isn't as high a priority as a lot of boards think it is or should be. No, and I agree. Then the boards need to understand, and they really do need to understand all the time the staff has to put into these and year-round time on these galas. It's not the three months before when boards usually brought in. Yeah. Year round, you're working on these and getting relationships and getting funders and sponsors. They don't see that time. That side. I'm going to switch gears now on you and uh, give you an opportunity to call out bullshit on anything you want to call uh, bullshit on. So, is, is there something in our sector that you are just fed up with in terms of people doing things the wrong way and thinking it's the correct way? I'm going to call bullshit on doing board of directors retreats when you have no intention of actually moving things from either the board end or the staff end. I've done many of those. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I will. <laughs> you know, I think it wastes the consultant's time and the board's time and the staff time if you're not doing anything. So, yes, I think it is bullshit. Now, I think the, the flip side of that is if you're doing a retreat with a consultant or someone like us as a facilitator that's putting together a strategic plan where you really want the board and the staff to be involved in it and it to be their ideas so that they're invested in it. I think that's a really good thing, but I agree with you when they have a retreat just to have a retreat and there's not any team building going on. There's not any planning going on. There's, it's just a retreat to retreat. Maybe that's not a great idea. Right. Well, and I think what, and where I'm looking at it saying that it is bullshit is you come up with a day, a day and a half, you have your board, you all come up with all these plans and you go back to whomever's writing up that plan. And that's the end of the plan until next year at your next retreat. Well, I think so. What you're really calling bullshit on then is not so much the retreat. It's the and somebody else said this on another podcast uh, from Community Partners said that she hates the idea of strategic planning because people it's all bullshit. People just uh, pretend to do a plan. They throw it in a drawer and that's it. I'm of the I'm of the belief that a strategic plan can be the best thing you do if you actually implement it and review it quarterly and look at the goals monthly and have the staff look at the goals weekly and really, you know, use that plan as, as uh, deadlines and goals for your organization. I think, I think I agree with you when they put three big hairy goals up there and then just throw it in a drawer and never do anything. Right. And I think that's why I'm calling bullshit. And what I will say to you, you're talking about continuous quality improvement and that's a whole different conversation. If you're using your plan for continuous quality improvement in your organization, Absolutely. That is the purpose of it. That is the reason you do it. But most organizations do it as a checkbox. And I personally, when I am going out and talking to clients, I tell them I don't want to do that. I mean, I'd rather not take their job and they can get somebody else. There's too many, you know, people that are understand that. That's not what I do. I'm a big data person, evaluation person, and that goes along with your strategic planning. And that is just a revolving circle. It goes on and on. It's a continuous circle. So yes, agreed. Um, but bullshit on the funders usually telling people or boards, staff, that they need this strategic plan that goes in a drawer. Yeah. Well, 
And, and you said the most important thing is that you have to do constant evaluation, which leads to planning, which leads to implementation, which leads, which leads to evaluation. And most people are not doing that. But that's that's not a failure necessarily a board so much as um, directors. I think CEOs are the ones who are ultimately charged with implementing that plan. Correct. They are. Most of your CEOs are the ones implementing that plan. And I don't think a lot of CEOs, I think they get so tied down into operation day-to-day management that they can lose sight of how to keep themselves sustainable, build capacity, all the, you know, your fund development plan, your marketing plan, all those wheels you have turning in the air at the same time. And I think the strategic plan, although it should be the first thing you're looking at to get direction, tends to be the last thing that, you, you know, CEOs look at. Um, and I don't know if that's just part of the job. <laughs> well, good. You know, I think I'm going to have to do a podcast on strategic planning because it's come up now with several people I've interviewed. And I think it's not so much that strategic planning is bullshit. It's, the way people are strategic planning yes, that is bullshit. I would agree with you. Yeah, you're right. The plan itself is not bullshit. Um, but how many times have you done that with a group and then you talk to them the next year and they're like, oh, we haven't touched that. It's like, what? Yeah. And then also, yeah, it's well, kind of like my well, time is in there too and my dedication. <laughs> like, what do you mean you didn't even look at it? Yeah. Well, like I said, for me, that's a failure of leadership. And uh, I just kind of, you know, because I spend a lot of time coaching the CEO when I do plans on how to implement it. And when I see that they threw it in a drawer and didn't do it, then, you know, and honestly with me, it doesn't happen that often because I spend so much time kind of drilling into them what they need to do with the plan. But when it does happen, then I just see it as a failure of leadership. No, I agree. I think it is. I think it's them. And, and it, I think it's just for whatever reason, it's gone to the bottom of the pile. You know, I'm not want to put that on anyone, but it's gone to the bottom of the pile. Like I said, for me, Personally, I'd rather not write it. I'd rather not get invested in this project if it's because you're checking a box. I can't I can say I've done plans with multiple organizations that doubled their funding because they followed the plan. So, you know, I would rather um, I would rather take the when I'm going into planning, I'd rather take the tech that they're going to follow it than just assume they're not. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. No, well, I think that part of that is as a consultant, part of that is as as I've learned over the years now, and I think I've gotten a lot better, on me qualifying the questions for the reasons on why they're doing it. So I think I've learned to ask better questions so that the clients that I get are in a better position to actually implement it. And then that doesn't mean I throw yeah. them, you know, I don't say, no, I wouldn't do it. I'd say, you know, I go to them about, you know, have you thought about trying some of these things first before you go into a full-on planning development that you don't feel ready for at all? <laughs> Um, so, you know, I yeah. think it's just, there is some qualifiers as consultants that I think we can do, um, and, and education, you know, and I don't know if we're still on record, but the other one with strategic planning that you might want to talk about is we were talking about consultants and educating on, um, people in the social sector about how you hire and what you're looking for when you're hiring an outside consultant. So I think there's a lot of learning that needs to be taken on both ends and what expectations are. And truly, I'm sure you and I, if somebody said, hey, I'm really checking the box with this strategic plan, can you look over my last five proposals and put something together? You could do it for them in a second without doing all the work, without doing the due diligence. It's like you have the stuff yeah. here, guys. It's here. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting topic for you to look at because there's so many directions people are going with it. Yeah, I think I'll do another podcast. Yeah, on that it's really sure. an interesting well, listen, because uh, it's kind of changing now over the time to where it was so 
front and center for now it's why, but Butner still wanted, so I still have to do it, but why am I doing it? What's like, what am I getting out of it? And I think you just spoke to that. It's actually the leadership. What are you getting out of it? It's, as we all know, it's what you put into it. So, And I've seen a lot of bullshit plans too, where somebody spent, I don't know, $20,000, $30,000 on a consultant to do a plan, and then they end up with a one or two page plan that has just you know bullshit goals on it that have nothing to do with the organization, and it's no wonder it gets thrown in a drawer. Right. Well, and I'm laughing because I just happened well, um, to see you recently. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I've seen that over and over in my career. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things that made me think I could I could do consulting because I was like, I could do a better job than some of these yahoos that they're hiring for much higher money to do, you know. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm getting off track. So tell tell us a little bit about, <laughs> tell us a little bit about uh, Moscovoy stra- Strategies and the kind of work that you do there. So Moscovoy Strategies works with companies for social good. We do a lot of leadership, business development, fund development, and marketing are our, our four main areas. And under those, we also do um, out of the marketing and fund development part of a new department is Paw Parties, which I'm excited about. And that is a department that's focusing strictly on pet owners and lovers and opportunities for them to get together for social good. So the whole department is really focused around pets. We do a lot of events, community events. We're doing a fundraiser in Corona, uh, but really focusing on healthy communities, healthy families, and your pets being part of that. So that's an exciting new part of Moss Boy Strategies that we're doing. And we're getting a lot of good feedback from people. Um, but it still stays in the realm of that whole uh, pillar on fund development, community health um, that we're in, and leadership development. That's actually pretty brilliant because you're taking the event, and instead of doing a big gala, you're taking an event and making it very mission-focused. So I'm guessing you're raising money for pet charities? Raising it for or, pet uh, charities, but the charities? one that we're doing in Corona, like I just said, is for actually free music lessons, but we're also bringing in pet adoption. So we're doing it as pet lovers celebrate the arts, and it's a night in Corona that we're doing, so it'll have different artist booths there. We're having pet you know, health fairs and workshops, canine dogs, dog adoptions. So it's a little mixture of everything, so you can put it in um, – but it's really fun to do it in that light instead of, like you said, the regular gala. And this is a free event to the community. We're getting it all sponsor-driven. So it really does bring community together and people together. And you're right, mission-driven, certainly. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, I, I'm not against doing events. I think events are really important for organization, but they should focus on the mission. And it's pretty great if you're doing something where musicians are in booths and pet uh, adoption booths are there and you're doing it as kind of a festival or fair where people can actually see both sides of these two two different organizations, uh, you know, the music and the the pets, and make something out of it. That's really it cool. It is. It's something new and different. Like I said, I think the gal is kind of the old school way. Communities and businesses want to get involved. They really do want to be involved. I think we put out social responsibility so much, and I think businesses are starting to, um, at least what I'm tar- talking to, and they're catching on that consumers go to businesses that give to social responsibility and their communities. They're socially responsible and give to their communities. And they do that now. And they're starting to catch on to that. So there's a lot of ways, as we in the industry, can start changing the way we work with our community and our businesses. We just have to get out of that traditional rubber chicken gala honoring that one person for the night and hoping they're going to bring in all the money because we just honored them. So there are some community really creative ways to doing it. And the way Mossway Strategies is looking at it is through families and their pets as being one of the member family members. 
Well, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your work. And I'm looking forward to working with you more in our um, uh, executive coaching sessions. Uh, so I appreciate you being on my podcast and thanks for all your great advice and wisdom. Thank you. And I'm glad you asked me to be honest at any time you have any questions or you'd like me to comment, please give me a call back. I'd love to talk to you again and I'll see you next week. I want to thank you for taking the time with us on 501c3bs. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.